You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Connection with our text this morning. I'd invite you to turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 32. We'll read the verses 1 through 12. Listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain, and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. O praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all His ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is He. They have acted corruptly toward Him. To their shame they are no longer his children, but a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father and he will tell you. Your elders and they will explain to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when He divided all mankind, He set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is His people, Jacob, His allotted inheritance. In a desert land He found them. In a barren, howling waste, He shielded Him and cared for Him. He guarded Him as the apple of His eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. The Lord alone led him. No foreign god was with him. Our text this morning is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. This, of course, immediately follows that poem or hymn or piece of exalted writing that Paul has written in his letter to the Philippians about the example of Jesus Christ and His his divinity and also His humility and also His exaltation. So following that, immediately the Apostle Paul writes, verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Congregation, whom our Lord Jesus Christ calls my beloved. I think that when a lot of people see this passage in front of us, especially the first few verses of it, they get in their minds a setting not unlike perhaps a seminary context where eager students and professors are always arguing about points of theology and about this point in theology in particular. So you can picture two students arguing 
about the relationship between God's work in salvation and our work in salvation. And so the one says, well, look at this text. It says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. we got to do something. And then another person says, well, no, because it's God who works in you. To which the other person responds, but ah, yes, but God works in you to will and to act. And then the other one responds, well, but it's all for his good pleasure. And so back and forth they go. Who's right? Who's wrong? What's this text trying to tell us? Where's the line between God's work and our work? Perhaps these are some of the questions that arise in our minds. These might be the questions that arise in our minds, but I believe that Paul's emphasis is very much elsewhere. He doesn't have in mind that seminary context and arguing about theological points. His focus here is not at all on finding the fine line between God's actions and our actions. Not at all. It's all the work of God. But the whole discussion is in a completely different context. Rather than in seminary where points of theological impact are being discussed, picture this conversation happening between two pastors or two elders who are driving from a conference about the divinity of Jesus Christ and His great work on our behalf to a congregational meeting which promises to be very divisive and very difficult for the church. It's about some issue where the groups think very differently and relationships are are being strained. And meanwhile, one of the pastors is being sued for $100,000 by someone outside the church. That's the sort of situation that Paul writes these words in. And the question is, how are we going to take what we just learned about the person and work of Jesus Christ, His divinity and His humility, and apply that in this situation to a a disunified church, a fractured church, without becoming sidetracked by the problem that's hanging over the head of one of the pastors. And the answer that Paul gives in our text is this. Work out your salvation together. That is, what you need to do at that congregational meeting is you need to take everyone back to that conference about Jesus Christ. That is what everyone needs to keep in mind. And that is what they need to to work out together as a congregation, as a church, as they work toward unity. They need to learn from Jesus Christ and consider what He has done and how He has done it. And so here Paul brings the point home. He's been talking about unity for a good part of this letter already, and he's bringing the point home. He makes explicit that that which sits behind the unity and the common purpose of the Philippians is the sovereign work of God. God is at work in you. And he goes further to show the twofold end or purpose of their unity and obedience. It's a witness to the world and it's to experience true joy in Jesus Christ. And so I preach the Word of God to you this morning under this theme. Work out your salvation in Christ together. Work out your salvation in Christ together. Work it out in obedience to the God who saves. 
as a witness to the world and for joy. Work out your salvation in Christ together in obedience to the God who saves. The first thing that Paul does as he gives this exhortation, a strong exhortation to the Philippians to remain united, is he re-emphasizes their obedience, especially first in relation to himself. The personal relationships between Paul and the churches that he serves were very strong. Paul was not some sort of dictatorial authority. He was not the highest person on the ecclesiastical food chain. Not at all. Paul, when he addresses the church, says he's a servant. And he is. Paul embodies the outworking of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And he does it at the beginning of our text here when he says, Therefore, my dear friends, my dear friends, he is writing to the Philippians because he cares about them. Because he is committed to serving them in Jesus Christ. And then, of course, he comes to the exhortation. Continue to work out your salvation. And on the forefront of Paul's mind here, on the forefront of the context, is obedience to God. You see, this section is very closely connected to what has come before, the verses 5-11, through 11, that, that hymn or poem or exalted piece of writing about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it even goes back further to chapter 1, verse 27, where he, Paul said, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's quite the same thing as saying, continue to work out your salvation. And the obedience theme flows directly into this and out of the example given by Jesus Christ. You'll notice that the word is used there in chapter 2, verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man... He humbled himself and became obedient even unto death. Christ was humble and he suffered in serving God and obedience to God was part and parcel of this. And so broadly speaking, Paul is continuing talking about the theme of unity, but he's talking more specifically here about obedience. Paul is still focused on the congregation as they live and as they work and as they serve to advance the gospel. And this is, of course, highlighted by something that you can't pick up in the English translation, but by the fact that these exhortations are written to the Philippians in the plural. It's not you singular, it's you plural, it's it's you all, y'all, you guys. He's writing to all of them to continue to work out your salvation as a church, as the body of Christ, before the God who saved you. That phrase, work out, has the, the, the sense of bring about the consequences of something. So there's something you already have, and you're to work that into your life. Paul's not trying to tell the Philippians that they need to get to work to try and get something that they don't have, salvation, but that they have to get to work applying what they do have, salvation. You know that salvation that you have in Jesus Christ? You know the confidence that you have in life and death? You know the unity that you share in Him? You know all that you have in Jesus Christ and His great saving work for you? Put that to work in your lives as you serve the Almighty God who has saved you. And do it, Paul says, 
with fear and trembling. And again, we need to understand what this fear and trembling is. It's not a sort of uncertain fear of the unknown, standing before the face of some terrible uncertainty, quaking in your boots kind of fear and trembling. That's not what Paul's talking about. If you were to look at the other references to fear and trembling in the New Testament, you'd see that that is not at all the sense of the phrase. Rather, what he's talking about is reverential devotion. Standing before the Almighty and the Holy God. And the point is this. Don't forget the God who is at work in you. Don't forget the God who is at work in you. In the face of this disunity, in the face of needing to work out your salvation, remember the God who is at work in you. He's powerful. He's awesome. He's holy. And so you already begin to get a sense of what Paul is doing in this passage. He's exhorting the Philippians to unity. But here, after he's loaded on the highest expressions of Christ's divinity and glory and humility and example, he continues to load on the weight. I have the picture in my mind that Paul is standing before a scale. And on one side, there's, there's ten pounds of the Philippians' fights and quarrels that are, that are threatening to tip the scales toward disunity and, and fracture and fighting and bitterness and to stop the advance of the gospel. And so Paul sees that situation and he knows that in order to fight that, he's got to put some weight on the other side of the scale. And so he loads on three tons of Christ divinity. He loads on three tons of unity with Christ. He mixes that all together with seven tons of Christ's example. And then just to be sure, he loads on God's holiness and unchangeable purpose. There. That should do it. It's the holy, awesome, all-powerful God in heaven who is at work in you, who is working out His purposes among you. And He works in you to will and to act. Or more literally, He works in your willing and your acting. That's speaking about the all-encompassing work of God as He directs your purposes, your will, and your efforts, your acts. And this is all according to His good pleasure. This work that God is, in do, is doing in you is in line with His gracious, redemptive work that He's been doing throughout history. Do you know the God who created the world? Who has been carrying out His gracious plan of redemption from its very beginning? Whose ways are wonderful? Whose purposes are unstoppable? Who's served by angels and lives in majesty and splendor? That's the God that is at work in you. That's the God that is in, at work in this church, in uniting us and using us for His purposes. And so with all this weight, the exhortation toward unity and loving service becomes stronger. You're putting the gospel into practice in your lives. It's no exercise in piety. It's not just you're trying to be a better person and that's why you need to do these things. No, you're working out the redemptive plan of the God of salvation before whom you stand in reverential awe. And so on your way to that divisive congregational meeting 
or if you're having a dispute with your friend in church, or if things aren't going well in that committee, or if you're concerned about worldliness facing the church, or whatever seems to be threatening the unity of the church, perhaps just the fact that we're all weak sinners, we need to heed these words and continue to work out the great work of Christ in our lives. We're not a nice club that organizes nice activities to keep nice people happy and busy and out of trouble. That's not what we're doing here at all. We're serving the advance of the gospel. We're serving the God of salvation. The God who is working out salvation in this world through us. And God is at work in us. God's working in us and through us. The gospel is advancing here right now, on Sunday, and on Monday, and on Tuesday, and Wednesday, and Thursday, and Friday, and Saturday. Suddenly, our petty little squabbles and our little hang-ups about certain points or this or that become pretty small. They lose their priority in our lives when we realize the God that is at work in us and what He is doing. That God is doing a much greater and grander and more powerful work among us. We come to our second point then. That Paul exhorts the Philippians to work out their salvation as a witness to the world. Paul continues his exhortation beyond verses 12 and 13, building off of what he said there. He moves from the general exhortation into the realm of purpose. He's showing the purpose for which this obedience needs to be worked out in their lives. And he's going to stay with that purpose till the end of the text. But yet, Perhaps that's not immediately obvious if you look especially at the first few words in verse 14. Perhaps you find it strange, as I did, that Paul begins there all of a sudden after speaking about God and working and acting and His good purpose, then he says, now do everything without complaining or grumbling. Certainly this is good advice for congregational harmony. But it just doesn't seem to hold the weight and the seriousness of what Paul has been talking about up to this point. So why does Paul mention grumbling and complaining? Aren't there bigger things that Paul could talk about? Well, actually, it's very significant that he speaks about grumbling and complaining. And it's full of importance. Paul is here actually alluding to the example given by the Israelites in the wilderness. You know the Israelites who were in the wilderness who were constantly grumbling and complaining? And he's noting there that they that is a classic example of what not to do. They serve as a warning for us of what not to do as God's people. Complaining about what God is doing and how He's doing it. Acting like disobedient, rebellious children. And resisting Him even as He sets the promised land before us. The grumbling and complaining, as I says, as I said, is that same grumbling and complaining that is repeatedly mentioned in the books of Exodus and Numbers. The people weren't three days away from being miraculously saved at the Red Sea from the hands of Pharaoh by the hand of the powerful God three days after, and they already started complaining and grumbling. Where's our water? We're going to die. Why don't you just take us back to Egypt? And they continued to murmur throughout their time in the wilderness. 
And Paul continues actually to talk about this generation in the verses that follow as well. He makes a clear reference to Deuteronomy 32 verse 5, which we read together. Deuteronomy 32 verse 5 said, they had, they have acted corruptly toward him. To their shame, they are no longer his children, but a warped and a crooked generation. And 32 verse 20, where Moses wrote, for they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. Compare that to verse 15, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses called the people of Israel the warped and crooked, perverse and unfaithful generation. There they were not behaving as the children of God. In the wilderness, they constantly rebelled against their Lord. They acted like selfish brats rather than like obedient children. And they consistently worked against the purposes of the God who had saved them. God redeemed them from Egypt and He gave them a task to do, but they resisted that at every turn. But now Paul is saying, as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, don't be like that generation. But since God is at work in you through His Spirit and through the example of Jesus Christ, be blameless and pure. Be children without fault in which you shine like stars, in which you hold out the Word of life. You see, there's a certain progression here that moves toward the purpose that I spoke about earlier. Living in obedience to God leads you to being blameless and pure. But this is not the end in itself. But rather, especially in this depraved generation, it means that you shine like stars in the world. Your obedience is a testimony to the word of life at work in you. In their disobedience, Israel worked against God's purposes. In our obedience, we are working for God's purposes. God lays out the ways that we are to walk before Him that we might walk in them and serve His purposes. Our obedience and faithfulness leads us to shine like stars, to hold out the word of life. That is, through obedience, we advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we do that even in dark and sinful times. The times that Paul was writing to the Philippians in were bleak times for the morality of the Romans. Paul was likely in Rome as he wrote this letter, and the emperor in Rome at that time was the emperor Nero. Nero was perhaps the most immoral and sensual emperor that there ever was, and he was in the culture, in a culture of immorality and sensuality. Mistresses, adultery, and immorality of all sorts were the norm. Those were the times. That was how the, the great and powerful and rich of the world were living. And what with all the affairs and immorality that we hear about day after day in the news, it kind of reminds you of the times that we live in as well. So what do we do in these times? What did the Apostle Paul tell the Philippians to do in those times? Well, he told them to hold out the word of life. The word of life. And there's a lot of discussion 
about what this word of life is, is really all about, whether it means hold out the word of life, as in the NIV, or if you have an ESV, you would read hold on to or hold fast to the word of life. A lot of discussion about what exactly that means, but I don't think there's actually a big problem here because both are obviously present. You can't very well hold out the word of life unless you hold on to the word of life. And you can hardly make the argument that he's only talking about holding on to the word of life since he's talking about shining like stars in the universe. We don't hold on to the word of life in a defensive position, but rather we hold it out and we offer it, the free offer of the gospel to all those who will hear. In a morally bankrupt world, what we're doing is not just offering a moral alternative saying, well, everyone's being really bad. You should all be good like us. That's what the Stoics were doing in the time of Paul. But that lacked the change of heart that they needed. No, we're holding out the word of life. That is, we're holding out the word that gives us life. The word that transforms life. We're holding out the gospel that renews. We're holding out the power of Jesus Christ to change lives. In a wicked and perverse generation, that is what we hold out. That's the hope that we hold out. That's how we shine like stars. Because we live out the word of life. And we hold it out for others to look to Jesus Christ. Are you worried about the times that we live in? Then hold fast to the word of life. And hold out the word of life. And shine even brighter. The darkness of what surrounds you, Paul is saying here, only serves to brighten your light. To make you shine brighter in the midst of it. You don't need to be overwhelmed by the darkness. But by holding on to the word of life, you shine like stars for all to see. Yeah, there's pressures on the church. Yeah, we live in a morally confused time. But hold on to the word of life and continue to hold it out because it is God who is at work in you. That's the way it was for the early church, which throve in the morally bankrupt times of the Roman Empire. Will it be for the church of Langley as well? In a culture cut off from its moorings, floating further into moral relativism, sexual promiscuity, immorality? Are we going to shine like stars? Are we going to hold out the word of life? Well, yes. Because it is God who is at work in you. And then we come to our third point, that Paul exhorts the Philippians to obedience and to work out their salvation for joy. So he's put the obedience and the unity of the Philippians in the context of the greatness of Christ's person and work, and he's exhorted them to be lights in a dark world, and then he drives the point home with an 18-wheeler as he puts their morality and their unity and their obedience in the context of the day of Jesus Christ, the work of Christ, and the ultimate goal for which we do all things. 
And this is highlighted by a certain tension, for lack of a better word, in our text in verse 16. You see, Paul drives to the goal when he says that I may boast on the day of Christ. That recalls the confidence that he had in 1 verse 6 when he said, I know that Christ who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion on the day of Christ. And of chapter 1 verse 10 where he says that you may be, he's praying so that you may be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. And when he mentions boasting, of course, we recall in our minds those great words from 1 Corinthians 1 verse 31, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 12, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Galatians 6, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So Paul is always boasting in the Lord. His boast is not in himself on the day of Christ, but in the powerful work of Jesus Christ. And so he brings us back to verse 13, that it is God who is at work in you to to will and to act according to His good pleasure. It's all the work of Jesus Christ. It's all in God's hands. The struggle to maintain purity, maintain purity, and to hold out the word of life in a crooked and perverse generation will end in triumph, will end in victory, and will end in completion on the day of Christ. There is no doubt. Or is there? And that's why I say there's a certain tension here. Because Paul says, so that I may boast that I did not run or labor for nothing. And then suddenly, in stark contrast to what he's just expressed, another opposite, terrible reality rears its ugly head. It might all be for nothing. Paul says, do this that I might not have labored in vain. And so you can read behind that, of course, that if you don't do this, then it will all have been in vain. And so suddenly, that horrible and chilling reality is staring us in the face. Could it all be for nothing? Could Paul's suffering be in vain? Could the work of Christ be stopped, stifled, or diverted? Has that chilling reality ever struck you? Have you ever looked out on the world or looked out on the church or looked out on your own life and thought, I wonder if it's all for nothing. It seems like we're not getting anywhere. It seems like it's only getting darker and we're not shining brighter. But, Paul says, but... But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. The image there, a drink offering was one that was given along with a burnt offering. It was given in cooperation with it as sort of completion to make a burnt offering more full, more pleasing to God. And so Paul's saying, well, you guys are suffering. That's the offering. And I'm being poured out beside you like a, like a drink offering. But even if that's happening, he says, I will rejoice. I will rejoice. To finish off this powerful exhortation to unity and obedience, Paul reaffirms his confidence in the Lord 
with those words, I will rejoice. And he expresses the fruit of that confidence in joy. Joy. The word's repeated four times in the original. You could read it, I will rejoice and rejoice with you. So also you should rejoice and rejoice with me. Rejoice, 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 rejoice. No matter what happens, Paul says, even in the face of it all being in vain, rejoice. Why? Because it's all in the hands of Jesus Christ, your Lord. No matter what happens, rejoice. You think things are getting bad? Rejoice. You're worried about facing disunity in the church? Rejoice. You're suffering under persecution and you don't know how it's going to end? Rejoice. Has the thought ever struck you that it might all be in vain? Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. And he'll say it again. Rejoice. These present trials and worries that lead us to despair should not lead us to despair but to rejoice in the cross of Jesus Christ. To rejoice in the knowledge and the reality and the certainty that our salvation is complete and that it is God who works in you. And so go on rejoicing. Work out your salvation because it is the awesome and powerful and almighty God who is working among all of you. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.